um, that as we see over and over and over again tonight, the proclamation, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord, your God, I pray that your character and the work you've done in redeeming us would be the context for all of the things that we read. I ask that you'd send your spirit to help us understand in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to pick up in the book of Leviticus tonight uh, in chapter 16. Whether you've joined us before or not, I feel the need to remind all of you that our goal here is, uh, is to be a survey. Um, we plan usually on covering at least three chapters every week. Um, tonight we're actually going to attempt five. And here, in, in this type of section, um, okay, side, side idea. Have you ever noticed how we associate mysteries with mountains and valleys, like there's an abominable snowman, or there's Shangri-La, and these are places that have highs and lows, but we don't have the equivalent of that in, say, like Kansas. There's no mystery when everything's flat and level, okay? Um, I think the reason that is is not because there's more area, um, but because there's highs and lows in the area that makes traversing it different. That's the type of text we have tonight. Um, texts with great, great clear peaks that point out who God is, that um, tie together great themes of the Bible that inspire and excite us, and also valleys that I would love to have time to navigate thoroughly to help you know how to walk through them, but we just don't. At best, what we're doing is flying over, you know, aerially. We'll see the mountains, we'll see the valleys, we'll point out the primary features, um, but I'm going to open more cans of worms than I close tonight, for sure. Um, some of you may even feel, in the words of, uh, of Bilbo Baggins, that tonight is going to be a little bit like too little butter spread over too much toast. Um, but the reason for that is a couple of things. Um, as, as much as I would love to come back to Leviticus and spend some time here and camp here, our goal really is, in seven years' time, to cover the entirety of Scripture, which is a goal I want to stick to. I think it's worthwhile. Um, and then second, there are things you can do from an airplane in terms of understanding the layout that you can't do on foot. And so I'm hoping that we'll see a little bit of that tonight. Um, but we are really going to, to cover the gamut of topics tonight, um, and, and none of them will we be able to handle as thoroughly as they deserve. So, chapter 16 stands at the center of the book of Leviticus. In fact, it stands at the center of the entire Pentateuch. Leviticus is one of five books that collectively go together, all authored by Moses, all forming this larger book. Larger book. In fact, Pentateuch just means the book of five. Um, and so right at the center of the whole thing, We've had Genesis, Exodus, we'll have Numbers, Deuteronomy, and right at the center of Leviticus, the center book is chapter 16, the focus on the Day of Atonement. 
And I just want us to understand as we look at this, uh, this evening, how many of the important things in Israel coincide with this event, okay? We have the most holy role, the high priest, offering the most holy sacrifice, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, on the most holy occasion, the Day of Atonement, in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Everything that Israel has sanctified, set apart, culminates on this day. It is the high note of Israel's year, and theologically it is the densest day of understanding who God is, who we are, and what it is that God is going to do in Jesus Christ. In fact, if we were to turn to the book of Hebrews, it's this occasion that the author of Hebrews spends chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 just unpacking, okay? Because it's right at the heart of what God is doing. And as I said, we find it here at the heart of uh, Leviticus, It also is a hinge in the book of Leviticus in that what we've covered so far has focused on the tabernacle, holiness in the tabernacle, the sacrifices, who can come in and come out, clean and unclean, um, these types of things. After chapter 16, it's going to transition to holiness in the camp. Another way to look at the book of Leviticus is here's what God has done and made available in the tabernacle in the first half. Here's how we should then live in light of it in the second half. But the hinge is this day of atonement, chapter 16. Let's look at it in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And so the first thing here in reference to an event that happened a few chapters ago in chapter 10, the death of Nadab and Abihu, the high priest Aaron's two sons who foolishly uh, offered what the author of Leviticus just calls strange fire before the Lord. Whatever it was, it wasn't according to the plan, and it cost them their lives. And so there's a reminder of that up front and a warning that Aaron is to stay out of this center room of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, on any given day except this one. Verse 3, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. Okay, the first thing to notice here is that he gets dressed, but it's not his business as usual dressing. Okay. Here we don't see the, uh, the plate, the breastplate. We don't see the brass plate that says holiness to the Lord. All of his high priestly garments are laid, as a, laid aside, and he just walks in in his basic garments, the same that any other priest would wear. The primary reason that is the case is because Aaron's not merely going in front of the holy place before his God on behalf of his people, but also on behalf of himself. And he gets no brownie points for being the high priest in his own approach for God. As we saw earlier, when the high priest offers a sacrifice, he doesn't eat from that sacrifice, right? Unlike when the priest uh, finishes off the symbolism of the sacrifice as being acceptable, the high priest doesn't get to call his own sacrifice acceptable. And so as he goes into the holy place, he goes as merely a man, even though he's a man in status as a priest who is holy, holy. 
Not only that, but we see, as we've seen many times, he also has to wash. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. Verse 5, he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. So there are sacrifices for him, a bull and a ram, and a sacrifice for the people. And he's going to present them simultaneously. First on his behalf and then on their behalf. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Now, this is one of the differences that the author of Hebrews points out between Aaron as high priest and every high priest who followed him in the Levitical priesthood and what Jesus has done for us. Aaron, on this great holy day, couldn't walk into the Holy of Holies in and of himself, but only bearing a sacrifice on his behalf. But Jesus as high priest, being sinless, didn't have to offer a sacrifice on his half. He was perfectly sinless and therefore could be a perfect mediator. But Aaron goes in with a sacrifice. Verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and one lot for Azazel. Now, we see here that on top of the sin offering that was mentioned for the people of Israel, uh, there's also these two goats, and here he casts lots for them, which is basically dry, like drawing straws. We'll see in a second that these goats have very different destinies, but that destiny is chosen by lot, in other words, left up to God. Okay. And so he casts lots for these two goats, and it says one is for the Lord, that means for sacrifice, and the other is for, and it just uses the word Azazel here. Now, if you read later Jewish books, like the book of Enoch, things that were written much later, Azazel becomes a name of a demon. And so if we read acronistically back into this, it makes it sound like there's two spiritual powers, the Lord and Azazel, and the goats are designated for them. Most likely, this word just means wilderness, Okay. The root words, the etymology of it all points in that direction. And so the distinction is one is going into the holy place. It's going to cost him his life, side note. It's not necessarily a better thing. And the other is going to go into the wilderness. That's the point of what's being said here. The significance of that will be unpacked in a minute. Verse 9, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Okay? And so one will be sacrificed as a sin offering, and we've seen that many times. Many of the other sacrifices involve a sin offering. You may remember that what happens in a sin offering is that there is a confession, there is a laying of a hand on the sacrifice, and then the animal is killed in the place of the offerer. But on the Day of Atonement, there's a second goat because what's going on here involves a deeper significance that really we just can't fulfill in a single goat, okay? And so there's these two goats. Um, We'll come back to them. And so verse 11, Aaron shall present the bull, remember that's the one for himself, as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself And he'll take a censer full of coals from the fire, from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, that means high quality, and he shall bring it inside the veil. Okay? We were already told that whenever the high priest goes into holy of holies, that he has to do so with incense. And what this incense is going to create is effectively a cloud, so although he's in the presence 
of the ark and the presence of God, he's not in direct sunlight, if you will. Okay? There's this filter. The room is full of smoke. And it's told, told us earlier that that's so he not die. And so he goes bearing incense to protect himself from um, seeing uh, the presence of God. Verse 13, he'll put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. One of the things we need to recognize here is how precarious this whole ceremony is. Every moment he spends in the Holy of Holies is a high-stakes moment. In fact, later Jewish writing says that it became tradition for the high priest to actually wear a rope wrapped around his waist and uh, you know, dangling out of the Holy of Holies and in the hands of another priest so that if he died in the presence of God, they had a way to drag him out without putting anyone else at risk. Okay? So the idea here, you may remember he had bells around his garment, is if the bells stopped ringing, they would assume the worst and pull him back out. Okay? Now as a side note, just because I can't resist, it's intriguing to me that when the author of Hebrews finishes and talks about our relationship with God, he says that we are anchored behind the veil. So unlike the high priest who's like, I always think of it like an astronaut, you know, with his safety line, floating out in the space of the Holy of Holies, for us it's reversed. Our center place, our anchor is in the Holy of Holies, and our life is outside. We're living from an opposite direction. But nonetheless, this was a serious place. The holiness of God was um, exposing of risk here. And so he takes incense, and then what does he do while he's there? Verse 14, he should take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So he goes all the way in the Holy of Holies, and he applies blood directly to the centerpiece furniture of the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. Um, This happens just once a year. And then, as we'll see, he kind of, in fact, uh, if you have a different translation, verse 14 might read a little bit differently, that what he does is he applies blood there, and then in the holy place, and then at the altar out here. We'll see that in just a second, but he works from the inside out. And what it says here is that it makes atonement, and then when we get to verse 16, we'll see that not only that, um, well, we'll just get there, verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that's for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall do for the tent of meeting, that's the holy place, which dwells within the midst of their uncleanness. Okay, so he starts in the holy of holies, On the sake of him and his household, on the sake of all Israel, he purges the reality of their sin. He makes atonement for it with the blood of a sacrifice, okay? And so all year long, sacrifices have been going on and other aspects of the tabernacle have had blood applied to them. Only once a year does it go to the heart of the tabernacle. And so one of the metaphors that I think is helpful in thinking on what's going on here is a contagion metaphor or a dirt metaphor. The tabernacle existing in the presence of sinful people is accruing uncleanness, okay? And so this purging is like a good deep down moral washing. It's a recognition of the fact that God is overlooking 
all of these realities of who, who human beings are so he can stay in the place. But the only way he can do that justly is life for life, okay? And so once a year, there's this, this total reset of the tabernacle, bringing back to square one. In fact, the significance of these things here is deeper. It says not only will this make, uh, make the tabernacle clean, but it will also make atonement for the people and their sins. And then continue here in verse 17. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put on the horns of the altar all around. Okay, so just like if you were mopping a floor, he mops his way from the center out. Right? So he deals with the contagion at the center and cleans out, then the holy place, and then the altar on the way out. It resets the whole thing. Uh, verse 19, he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. But we still have something left undealt with, right? The other goat. So notice this, verse 20. When he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place... In the tent of meeting of the altar, he shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. Okay, and so here is that second goat, and in some ways, it's similar to the other things we've seen. There's identification through the laying of hands, there's the confession of sins, but the detail is deeper. So it's not one hand here, but both hands. And it's not just the, um, the low-handed sins, the sins of uh, neglect, but also the high-handed sins. It takes all three of the Jews' words for sin here, sin, iniquity, uh, and um, transgressions, takes all of them and it says all the sins, all the transgressions, all of it, okay? This sacrifice deals with the kit and caboodle of the sin problems of Israel. And so he places both hands as a full identification with this. But this goat is going to live, Right? Leviticus has already said on multiple occasions that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. But like I said, this goat is serving two, two parts of the metaphor. It has two things to say, and so it takes two goats to do it. One dies, but connected to that okay, is this other goat. Uh, if you're into uh, scientific things, this is like particle entanglement, Right? Particle entanglement is this thing that we can do that makes no sense whatsoever where we can connect the destiny of two molecules and they'll behave as if they're touching one another even if they're miles apart, okay? It's part of quantum physics that we know would work and we've tested and proven it would work. We have no idea why this is the case. In this case, these goats, through the casting of lots, are entangled in their destinies. They're related but separate. And so what we see here is the full confession of sins and then what happens to the goat? He puts them on the head of the goat and sends it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness, okay? High priest isn't allowed to leave the, the temple and so an appointed person takes the goat out into the wilderness, verse 22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself into a remote area and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. 
So what do these goats say collectively together? One, that there's a cost for salvation, and the other, that the salvation is achieved. Okay? Later on, one of the prophets, or it might be one of the psalmists, says that God has separated us from our sins in forgiveness like the east from the west. And it's relatively clear that this is what he's thinking of. Here's why I say that. Because the Holy of Holies, by definition, always, uh, always existed in the west. So the priest takes one goat to the west, all the way to the Holy of Holies, and the other is out into the wilderness, away from the people, into the east. Okay? And so the idea here is, is that not only has God overlooked or forgotten their sins, but he's removed them from them completely. This is the value of the Day of Atonement. Okay? Verse 23, then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments. He shall put on the ones he put on when he went into the holy place and leave them there. He shall bathe his body in water in the holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. So now that the sins are purged, now he can get back into the initial and baseline rhythm of Israel's worship, which is the burnt offering. Uh, an offering of consecration and dedication that says, all of my life is yours, and so as this animal is fully consumed on the altar, in my place, I'm offering my life entirely to you. And so he does that for the sake of the people. If you want to think of this as New Year's Day, and, and that's not a bad way to think about it, everything up to that point is the end of the old year, and now we have the beginning of the new year. Midnight happens right between these two sacrifices as he washes and changes his clothes. Verse 27. Um, is that where we're at? I don't think that's where we're at. 25, much better. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, just as it says earlier in Leviticus 1. And he shall let the goat who go to Aziel, shall, he who lets the goat go to Aziel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire, which is just what you would normally do with a sin offering. Verse 28, and he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever in the seventh month, on the tenth day of month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, okay? And so on the day, this is what the priest does. What do the people do? It says two things. It says that they afflict themselves and they do no work. Not just them, but anyone in the land of Israel, stranger or native, right? Um, master or slave, everyone takes the day off. What does it mean to afflict themselves? Most likely it means fasting, Right? It means that this is not, like many of the other holidays of Israel, a feasting day, but a fasting day. In fact, it's the only one that's appointed for Israel. One day a year, they were to fast, and basically what this coincides with is the fact um, that everything that's going on in the tabernacle on this day is serious. It has to do with sin and the consequence of sin. And so this is a visible manifestation of sorrow and repentance, Okay. Um, now, verse 30, 
Why are they to afflict themselves? Why are they to do no work? For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You should be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It's a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for the people of the assembly. Two things to notice there. One, it's moving from the inside out, right? So it's the the ark and then the holy place and then the altar and the priesthood and then the people, okay? It's moving outwards, but it's also comprehensive. All that there is to Israel is dealt with in this single day, in this single celebration, okay? Hey, Matt, would you do me a favor and hit the stage lights? I got about five minutes until I can't read my Bible anymore. Um, ah, much better, thank you. Uh, verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. Now, if you've been traveling through Leviticus with us, you know that all of these things were done according to the plan because God was um, basically providing an, a constant, consistent, regular, ongoing object lesson for Israel in what he was going to do in salvation. So as I said, the author of Hebrews picks up on this day in particular as being the pinnacle of these things, the fullest picture of what God was going to do when he sent the Messiah. Um, and then he, uh, the author of Hebrews, connects the dots for us. And we don't have time to read all four chapters, but I did want to just turn to Hebrews chapter 9 for just a second and give you kind of the climax Okay, so as we finished in verse 34, this will be a statute for whoever the son of Aaron is, who is the high priest for all the history of Israel. And then without missing a beat, verse 11 of chapter 9, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, not annually, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so their symbolism was not only pointing to Christ, it also pointed to its own insufficiency, right? Because it had to be done yearly, over and over again. The sin just kept reaccruing, but Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, dealing with the depths of the issue and granting forgiveness perfectly and permanently. So that's the Day of Atonement, and now we start to move into what we call the Holiness Code. Okay? Like I said, the first half of the book has to do with holiness in the tabernacle, and the second half has to do with holiness of the people of Israel because of the tabernacle. 
And there is a little bit of structure, just a little bit. If, if there's one thing you need to understand about the book of Leviticus is that the law code isn't organized alphabetically or topically. It tends to jump around. That doesn't mean that there's not structure, but the structure is in broad swaths and not in little sections. And so here's a structure I noticed as I was reading through these chapters tonight. At uh, chapter 17, it focuses on sacrifices. It focuses on our relationship with God. Then in chapter 18, it focuses primarily on family, what happens in the household. And then in chapter 19, it broadens out to the entire community. And Lord willing, if we make it all the way through chapter 20, then it deals with punishments of all of those areas combined. Okay? So there really is kind of a flow to what we're doing tonight. Um, but it is really easy to get lost in what's going on because like all ancient law codes, Code of Hammurabi, Babylonian codes that we have, the organization of them isn't like a modern law book where it's topically arranged. It's different than that. Okay? Um, we'll see that, but let's pick up in chapter 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and the man shall be cut off from among his people, okay? Now, what it's saying here is that any sacrifice, um, not only any sacrifice, but most likely any meal of meat, anytime you killed an animal to eat it, you had to do it through the confines of the ritual ceremonies of the tabernacle. In other words, when you ate meat as an Israelite, it was part of a fellowship offering, okay? Whenever they ate, whenever they feasted, is a good way to picture this, they always did it in the company of God. That's what the fellowship offering represents, okay? Um, later, when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, it will broaden this out and it will say, uh, when, you, when you're living in the land and you're not near the tabernacle, it's okay to kill animals to eat, but not to sacrifice, okay? But remember here, they're all living right around the tabernacle in close quarters, the reason for this is twofold. One has to do with making sure that there are no unauthorized sacrifices, and the other has to do with the sanctity of blood. We've talked about this before, but if you're a vegetarian for conscientious reasons, the book of Leviticus can make you tremendously uncomfortable because it's full of the death of animals, and all of them are recognized to be innocent, right? But there is also this high standard in the symbolism that actually the killing of animals is tremendously clamped down for the people of Israel. They can't just do it willy-nilly, and they can only do it in the confines of sacrifice. Why? Because the symbolism of blood is so essential that God wants it anytime it's exposed, anytime there's the shedding of blood, anytime there's the death of an animal to be in this context. For the life, Leviticus says, is in the blood. Okay, so anytime a life of an animal is taken, it should be because of Israel's sins. It should be with the full weight of that reality of death. Okay. But also, as I mentioned, it's not just about the sanctity of blood, it's also about the dangers of idolatry and worshiping other gods. And so that's where it goes next. 
verse 5, this is, to the, uh, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices, that they sacrifice in an open field. They may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings. That's the fellowship offering that they could eat. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, uh, and the burn the fat for the pleasing aroma to the Lord, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. Now, I don't know about you, but that comes kind of surprising. Referring to the people as whoring around comes kind of out of the blue. It's a common metaphor in the Bible, but in Leviticus, it just pops up here. It feels to me, as a reader, like a personal jab, like God is effectively saying to the people of Israel, do you think I don't know what's going on? Right Before this point, there's been no tabernacle. There's been no sacrificial system. This is all new. And one of the things that's striking about God is that he always meets us where we're at. So, for example, when Israel gets into the land and Samuel is operating as prophet, there are sacrifices being offered to the Lord on the high places. But once the temple is built, no more high places. That becomes a serious complaint of the prophets of Israel. It's not that they were okay at one time and bad later. It's that people were just doing it. And so God has a plan to fix this, but he starts where people are at. And that's true of our lives as well today. Repentance calls for drastic commitment to change, but it begins where you are, not where you aren't. And so here we get the recognition that part of the reason he does this is because there's already... Despite the golden calf and the consequences of that, despite the provision of the tabernacle right at the heart of the community, there's already sacrifices to goat demons, something that they had picked up from the Egyptians and from the Canaanites already going on in the camp. And notice here, the way that God speaks of it is in a metaphor of marriage fidelity. When he says that they are whoring around with them, um, whom after they whore, the emphasis here is as God as a faithful husband and them as an unfaithful bride. And this is one that extends throughout the whole history of Israel. If you read Leviticus earlier on, if you read the book of Exodus, God says the whole point of this is that I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a covenant of loyalty and it's an exchange of relationship. And so worship outside of that is not just idolatry, but adultery, metaphorically, okay? He's trying to stress the seriousness of this. If you're married and if you have a spouse, you can understand the weight of what he's saying here. Okay. Um, Pick up in verse 8. And you shall say to them, any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man should be cut off from his people. So the first half of chapter 17 has to deal with where animals can be killed and why they can be killed. The second half has to do with what happens with the blood when they are killed. Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or any of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So they're not to treat blood lightly because it is the thing that God is using for atonement. He says, because you use it on the altar at the cost of your sins, you are not to consume it in your normal everyday meal, okay? And so kosher law requires that you kill an animal by slitting its throat and then hang it upside down and let the blood drain from it entirely before you eat it. Um, 
Now, verse 13, anyone also of the people of Israel or strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with the earth. Now, side note, it's only the domestic animals used for sacrifice that they have to bring to the tabernacle. If they're out hunting and they kill wild game, that has nothing to do with the sacrifices, but they still have to make sure the blood is poured out and because of the sacredness of the blood, not just left on the earth, but covered by the earth. They have to bury the blood um, before they eat the animal. Verse 14, for the life of every creature is its blood. The blood is its life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself or what's torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. And so there's one last reminder here that if they come across an already dead animal, they're supposed to keep their distance from that. There's a clean, unclean consequence of that like we talked about last week, and that's mentioned here, but it's not on the level of the serious offense of what happens with the blood, right? The serious offense there is that he'll be cut off from his people, which at the very least means exclusion, at the very worst means capital punishment. The word is used broadly in different ways, okay? Now, here's what's intriguing about this, okay? God is so serious about them understanding the cost of salvation and the consequence of sin being death, that he sanctifies this reality of blood. And he says, it only means one thing for you as a people. One thing. It means life. And so when it's taken and when it's spilled, it means death, it means consequence of sin, and therefore it means atonement. They are commanded here not to eat the blood. Now do you understand when Jesus is speaking and he says to a crowd of Jews, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Why the Jews are offended by that? But the profound statement that Jesus is making is that there's something Jesus is going to do that is so different from this that we actually have to partake of that sacrifice to benefit from it. That's why communion has the cup of wine, which is representative of the blood. It's a constant reminder that we are consumers recipients of what Jesus has done. But it's also a constant reminder of the difference between Israel and here. Now this actually leads to a difficult problem in the early church because that church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And so Gentiles don't have kosher laws. They're not used to draining the blood out of their meat. And so Jews who are Christians are meeting Gentile Christians and they're starting to get really nervous about this behavior. Okay. And so in in Acts chapter 15, the church comes together and they write a letter to all the Gentile churches and they say, we believe that the Bible is clear that you do not need to become Jews to be saved, that God's whole plan was to use Israel to save the nations as they are nations. And it says, but we recommend that you stay away from sexual immorality, from things that have the blood in it, and from idolatry, okay? So they make these three concessions. And so it's worth asking today, because it says that, and it's speaking to Christians, even Gentile Christians, should we be avoiding blood? Now, if you're just an American of of most Anglo descent, that's probably not something you're interested in. It's not something you're worried about. If you're Filipino, that's a very different thing, 
right? Even if you're from parts of the UK where blood pudding is a thing, this is actually a pertinent question. But the thing to keep in mind is what's happening in Acts chapter 15 is not merely these things are still important. It's these things stand between the fellowship of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Even when it says there to stay away from sexual immorality, most likely it's talking about incest. In fact, we find here in chapter 17 things with blood, and we find in the next chapter, chapter 18, incest. And one of the differences between Roman and Greek culture and Jewish culture is that they drew the line of incest differently. Okay? And so Jews were constantly offended by some of the Roman marriages that were inside the no boundary for sexual relationships. And so they may be drawing that line when it's mentioned there. Okay? But the other thing to remember, like I pointed out to you, is that for us, because of the sanctity of that blood and what it was accomplished in Jesus Christ, we are all called to partake of blood. Not physically, but metaphorically in communion, there's this reminder that that's where our life is. That the life of Jesus wasn't just a life in our place, but the offering of life that gives us life. Okay? So, chapter 17. Now, as we get into chapter 18, um, all of this is about sex. Okay? That's what chapter 18 is about. It focuses primarily about sexual relationships in the, concept of the, or in the context of the household. Because remember... According to the Bible, the only place that's appropriate for sexuality is between a husband and a wife, okay? And so it's setting boundaries in that context. I want you to notice as we go through that, that as a culture, we may draw the lines differently, but we very rarely ask why we draw the lines differently, and that's tremendously important, okay? For us as a culture, as, as modern Americans, generally this is how it works. Sex begins with desire and is bounded by consent. Okay. So as long as what you want involves the equal and not oppressive consent of another person, then it's okay in sexuality. The Bible says that sex begins not after the garden, but as part of the design. And for Christians then, we look at sex as being stemming from design and bounded by intention. Do you understand the difference there? And so I wouldn't be surprised tonight, especially if you're not a Christian, if you find some of this stuff not just questionable but offensive. But I'll challenge you as we look at this to recognize the inconsistency in your own thinking in sexuality. Okay? Because desire and consent doesn't get you very far, and nobody lives as if that was the only metric to sexuality, even though it's the one we use to justify our sexuality today. For example, you can have desire for your sibling... And you may even have consent. In fact, it is even in an intimate relationship by definition and can be a loving one, and yet that's a boundary consistently as a culture that we draw as being inappropriate. So does Leviticus. All I'm trying to say tonight, and I'll try and bring this out, is that the logic of Leviticus is consistent, whereas ours is inconsistent. And it has to do with this question. What is sex for? The Bible doesn't... Uh, moderate or mitigate or put boundaries around sex because it is distant from God, but because it is so directly related to who God is and who we are. Okay. Now, I don't have time to unpack that whole thing. I'm just going to make some observations as we go along. Chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Notice where this chapter begins. 
who God is. Identity. Because I am the Lord your God, look at verse 3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. Okay, so the second thing we see here is that they are to be different. Not like them, not like them. Not the people you came from in Egypt, not the people who live in the land currently in the land of Canaan. What he's about to say about sexual ethics is supposed to be different. Okay? Verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Twice again, God points to himself. And I want you to keep in mind what this means. This is not just don't forget I'm the boss. Okay. Sometimes we look at the moral code of the Bible and we think of it as being arbitrary because we don't understand its meaning. And so we read, I'm the Lord your God, and we hear this authoritarian statement that just says, you better do what I tell you to. In this context, that is not what this conveys. I am the Lord your God speaks of the covenant. I am the Lord your God speaks of what he's done in bringing them out of Egypt. Basically, it's a, as you look at this, remember who I am. You have to filter the moral code of God through the character of God, okay? And that scene in the last statement here when it says, if a person does them, he shall live by them. The way that the Bible sees its own moral code is not a restriction to limit your fun or to set boundaries, but the way that life works, okay? And so sometimes, sometimes it's helpful to think of the law of God more like a car manual than a legal code, okay? Your car manual has guidelines for maintenance, And you are completely free not to follow those guidelines, but they are for the health and quality of your car. So you can go, I don't care about oil changes. Oil changes aren't important. But as that starts to muck up the insides of your car, your car doesn't run. We tend to think of freedom as being completely unbounded. And real freedom means I make the decisions and no boundaries stand in the way. But that car manual is also talking about freedom. If you want the freedom to keep driving your car, then there are rules involved. If you want the freedom to be able to leave your house, it changes the way you eat, right? So that you can fit through the doorway. If you want to be able to get out of bed when you're elderly, it changes the way you live when you're young, okay? And so what he says here is the things I'm telling you are for life. Not just, not just to avoid judgment, but to flourish, okay? But once again, it comes back to that question of what is sex for? If you have an answer for that and it involves this is what it's for, then it not only creates a positive vision of sexuality, it also shapes the contours or the context of where that sexuality achieves what it's for and where it does not. Okay. Verse 6, none of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Uncover nakedness is just a euphemism for having sex. Okay. Now, it's going to be really thorough on incest, and it's worth recognizing why that's the case. Remember that not only is Israel not to intermarry with other people, but they're also to maintain their tribal identity for the sake of the land, which means if you're a Levite, you marry Levites, okay? And so they have these external boundaries of who they can marry already. They need the internal ones because the pool is smaller. Nonetheless, um, It does get explicit here. So what does it say? Verse 7, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. And what does it mean by putting those two together? 
It goes back to what Genesis talks about, that what happens in a sexual relationship of marriage is that two become one flesh. So it's not merely um, against the sexuality of one person because they're related to you, but also the sexuality of their spouse because you've broken the boundary of the marital relationship, right? Do you see that? And so it continues on, not your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. So even if, even if it's your stepmom, it says here, it is your father's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. Now, one of the things to keep in mind here is that most of this also defines the boundaries of the average household in Israel. These are all people who would have lived together. We tend to just live um, as uh, atomic families. Is that right? That's what we call it, right? What's that? Nuclear family. That's what I want. Not atomic. Good. Nuclear family, right? So it's mother, father, or mother, father, and children. You have extended family, but they live elsewhere. Not so in the ancient world. When you went and brought a wife home as a, as, as a man, he, you moved her into the household with your parents, okay? And so they lived in these broader categories. And so you can also recognize why this is important, okay? Because it's, it's recognizing a boundary here that should not be broken. And it clarifies that even if, the, even if they're removed by marriage, even if they're not by blood, if they are by marriage, it's a one flesh relationship and not to be violated. Verse 10. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. So now it's up into aunts and uncles. Father's brother, that is, you shall not approach his wife. She, he, she is your aunt. You should not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You should not uncover her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is a depravity. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to his sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. And so it sets these boundaries. Now, the reasoning is built right into the first expression of what sexuality is like, uh, is about in Genesis chapter 2. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's a boundary here of family, okay? In fact, Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful and multiply, so even in that one flesh, flesh relationship is not just the potential, but the call for children, the forming of the family. And so there's a line set there. Now, if you ask yourself tonight, what is wrong with incest, outside of the just, it's gross, coming up with a logical, ethical foundation can be a hard thing to do for modern Americans. In fact, even if you go, but we know what happens with inbreeding, and that makes it inappropriate because it's dangerous for the offspring and the children, what if they're infertile? What if they never have kids, right? There has to be something that maintains that line. And for the Bible, it has specifically to do with what the purpose of sexuality is, which is in the confines of marriage. Okay. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she is in 
her menstrual uncleanness, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife. Now, those two seem completely different. One says, don't have sex with your own wife while she's on her period, and the other says, don't have sex with someone else's wife. So why does it throw that one in here about blood? As we've already seen in Leviticus, it has to do with the blood itself and the significance of that. But it is worth mentioning that one of the things that runs through this whole passage in common um, not only has to do with the outcome of kids. We'll see that. That's clearly a part of this. Um, And so during a menstrual cycle, there's no kids. Um, But also, also it has to do with a proper understanding of what sex is for. And so one was a division of inside the family and outside the family. And then this one is a division of when sex and when not sex. And then verse 20, and you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. And so adultery is put completely out. Now, let me deal with a reservation that some people have. They go, look, this is the Old Testament. This is the law. This is exactly what Jesus dealt with. And so shouldn't we take these things less seriously? Jesus doesn't. He takes it much more seriously. He takes this one commandment here from Leviticus 18 uh, about adultery, and he says, I tell you what, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. He takes the standard rulings on divorce of the Old Testament, and he tightens them, not loosens them. He says the only reason divorce is an option in the Old Testament is not because of God's design and plan, but because of hardness of heart. It's a concession because bad husbands are bad husbands and can be hurtful to a woman. And so divorce is better than her having to live with an abusive husband who will resent her the rest of her life. Okay? Um, And so adultery is off the list. With that, as a side note, in the Jewish mind would be any sex outside of the confines of your own marriage. Okay. Most women would have been married, so that's the prime candidate, candidate, candidates, but that sets this boundary. Notice verse 21. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Now some, just reading this chapter, have gone, this must be talking about uh, religious prostitution. Okay. We know that many of the religions around Israel involved sex in their worship. And so the temple priests and priestesses were actually temple prostitutes. And so maybe this, is saying, uh, maybe this is saying that to put your kid in that role is an awful thing, which would tie it directly in with sexuality. But when the Bible goes on to talk about the worship of Molech, it also talks about child sacrifice. Putting your children through the fire is the phrase that's used. And if our archaeology is correct, the way that they would do this in the worship of Moloch is that they would have this golden statue of Moloch with outstretched out, uh, arms, and they would heat it in the fire, and then they would lay their baby child on top of it, and it would burn alive. Okay. Why do we find it here? Because as I told you, we're talking about the family, and we're also talking about sexuality, and offspring and sexuality go together. See, that's something that we don't, not, not only something that we might disagree with, it's something that in modern culture we don't even think about. Because since the existence of the pill, we've separated procreation and sex as being two separate things. Okay. But when we ask why is this here, we find consistency. That it has to do with, in the same way that you're not to put your seed into your neighbor's wife, you're also not supposed to put your seed, the baby, the outcome of that relationship, in the hands of a, you know, a human sacrifice. It continues on here. Verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. 
Now, I think that's the one that is the hardest for us to receive today because it's clearly talking about a homosexual act. Okay? In fact, it uses the label here abomination, and it's worth pointing out that that word probably doesn't mean what you think it means. Okay? Abomination is taken on such a strong term, but in a specific way. When we hear the word, it means uh, monstrous. Okay? That's not what the word means in Hebrew. It does mean detestable, but it means something you would keep at a distance. And so, for example, in the book of Job, he says, speaking of God, you've thrown me in a ditch and even my clothes detest me, want to get away from me. Okay? It is worth pointing out that when the word is used this way, because it's used throughout Leviticus, this is the only place in all of Leviticus, in all of Leviticus where it's used in the singular. So it refers to abominations. Here it refers to the abomination. Okay? And so there is a significance and a seriousness to what's being talked about. But here's another thing we have to understand. Here the Bible is talking about this in terms of an act, not an orientation. Now why is that important? Because it's not a homosexual who is abominable. It is the act that is abominable. Now if you're not a Christian tonight, that might not give you much more room. You might still find that tremendously offensive, but it is incredibly important, okay? Like I said, for us, desire, as long as their consent, justifies sexuality. But the Bible says sexuality exists for a purpose, and this sexual act goes against the grain of that purpose. Now, this is the can of worms that I knew we would open tonight that we don't have time to close. All I want you to recognize tonight... um, once again, is that there's, that there's this consistency, that this is rooted in an idea of what sex is for, which has to do with this man and woman and the two shall become one flesh relationship in marriage. It goes on in verse 23, and you shall not lie with any animal and so make yourself unclean with it, neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it, it is a perversion. And there's a reason why I wanted to add this one right here as well. Okay, this is talking about bestiality, and it once again has to do with boundaries. Okay? And so as we've seen, there's boundaries in the family. Um, there's boundaries in what's your marriage and not your marriage. There's boundaries that are engendered. And here there's a boundaries in what is human and what is not human. Okay? See, here's the thing. This is one of the aspects of how the Bible views sexuality. It views it as embodied. And here's what I mean. I mean that sex is personal. It involves your whole person. Notice I didn't just say that it views it as physical. That's a truism. Sex is clearly physical. But when I say embodied, that means that it's not just something you do with your body. It's something you do. And a lot of the ways that we go about sexuality in the modern world is objectifying. It makes people not a person, not embodied, but a means of pleasure. A technology of happiness that's for our using. Pornography would be the clearest example of this, right? You do not own up to the imago Dei, the image of God, the personhood of another person when you engage in pornography. You just use them as an object for your own pleasure, okay? The reason why the Bible says that anything outside of marriage uh, is not appropriate has to do with that embodiment. Okay. Even when it talks about homosexuality, it's in this context of a man as a man and a woman as a woman. Okay. Now, I know that doesn't solve all the problems, but I want to get you thinking in the proper direction. 
Let's continue, verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by the nation, all these things that the nations I'm driving you out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean. Lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, or the persons who do them, shall be cut off from among the people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that was practiced before you, and never make yourself unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. There's so much more I could say, but I want want to keep going. I'll just say this then. Starting September 24th, definitely in our morning service, probably here in our evening service as well, we're going to take seven weeks and do a series on gender and sexuality. And so if you have questions, great. Answers are coming. Um, But we don't have time in this format. Chapter 19. So chapter 18 deals with the household. It deals with marriage. It deals with the family. It deals with sexuality. Chapter 19 broadens out and deals with all of Israel. Side note, chapter 19 is one of the highlights of Israel's moral code. It is the place where it ranks higher than any of the ancient world and continues to inspire modern life today. This is the chapter that says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. When James is talking in James uh, chapter 2 verse 8, he refers to the royal law and then he quotes twice from Leviticus chapter 19. And if you keep reading closely in James, he alludes to it another 10 times. Okay. It's formative. But notice it's right on the back of chapter 18. And there may be highs and lows, places that are inspiring and places that are difficult for us to understand, but they're coupled together. They go hand in hand. Chapter 19, verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So effectively, what chapter 19 is about is holiness, and it is incredible how many places it touches. What we have in chapter 19 is a survey of holiness, and it's all over the place. It's going to talk about everything. Some of them are going to seem very important. Some are not going to seem important at all. But it's a survey, and so it continues on. One other thing that I should mention about chapter 19 is we find references to all 10 of the 10 commandments in chapter 19. Okay? So it's a review of the law that Israel already knows, but the goal is to unpack this idea of be holy as I am holy. Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any god of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. It's going to say this phrase, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God, a total of 16 times across chapter 19. And it actually does it poetically in an organized way. The first four are all, I am the Lord your God. The next four are all, I am the Lord. And then there's an intermix of them and a different intermix of them. Okay, there's a structure here. It's just not our normal topical organizational structure. Continues on in verse 5. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that it may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it's eaten at all on the third day, it's tainted and will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he's profaned what is holy to the Lord and that person shall be cut off from his people. And so notice here, it goes back to what we already know, that the fellowship offering is to be consumed within two days of its offering. On the third day, it's out of bounds. 
I want you to notice what it says next. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I think there's an intent in putting these side by side. One has to do with holiness in the offerings and the fellowship you have with God, and another has to do with how you treat the poor. And there's a tendency to distance these things, to think of morality as only being something that involves social justice matters and how we treat the poor. And others who go, those things aren't important. What really matters is devotion uh, and, you know, this Godward, uh, Godward religion. The Bible never separates them. It keeps them hand in hand. And so it says the fellowship offering. And then what does it say about the vineyards? Uh, and your harvest in particular, that you're not to harvest it 100%, that you're to leave the corners uh, and to leave behind some of it for the poor to come behind you and glean. And so clearly here, God cares for the poor being taken care of. Okay? But I want you to notice how ingenious the way that goes about this. This is not a handout for the poor. It's an opportunity for them to feed themselves by their own hands. Okay? In fact, it saves them from begging. Right? They don't have to knock on the door and say, I don't have anything to feed my family. It's just left out in the field for them to glean. Obviously, we're not an agrarian society. And so, is there any value in this for us today? Clearly, as a community, God expects society to value and to take care of the poor. Okay. We'll see that over and over again in this chapter. Verse 11, you shall not steal. You shall not do falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. Now, what do these all have in common? They have to do with taking advantage of your neighbor. Even when it says you will not swear falsely, that means that you've raised your hand in court and you've said a lie, okay? You've, you've got a criminal investigation going on and either to cover up your neighbor's sins or more likely, um, you know, out of hatred, you, you give false testimony. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you at night until the morning. Okay, and so day wages or day wait laborers were paid daily, and it says that has to happen. At the end of the day, you don't send them home because that's their livelihood, okay? And so really, this is pointing to a concept that we understand today as a livable wage, Okay? There should be a way for them to be able to survive on labor. Um, and it recognizes that either out of ignorance or outright oppression, employers cannot fulfill that. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Do you get the idea behind those? Why would it be okay to curse the deaf? Because they can't hear you, right? Why is it funny to put a stumbling block in front of the blind person? Because not only do they not see it, but they didn't see you do it. But God cares about the disabled. And he says they're not to be taken advantage of. Okay. He says, I am the Lord. And he continues in verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. And so he calls for justice in the courtroom. Verse 16, you shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. What does it mean to stand up against the life? This recognizes that in the courtroom, what you say can have death sentence consequences. 
And he says, that's a serious thing. And he says, don't, don't take advantage of, you know, the questionable criminality of a person to take their life. And then once again, it says, I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, and so God's call is be holy as I am holy, and the centerpiece description of that is love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean practically? It means in the same way that you take care of your own needs, you should take care of your neighbor's needs. It's very simple. Okay? Don't fall into the trap of modern Christian pop psychology that says the only way to love your neighbor is yourself is first to love yourself. That's totally out of context. Okay? The idea here is, is representing the fact that we all love ourselves in the fact that we had dinner tonight, right? In the fact that when we are hungry, we eat something. In the fact that when we are tired, we go to bed. In the fact that we long for safety and protection and security. And so it says, take your own needs and desires and use them as a metric to determine your behavior for other people. Okay? But I also want you to notice the context here. This verse is a big deal. It's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. This is the one that Jesus chooses to be one half of what it means to do right. Love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. But notice the context. Read it with me again. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor or, or literally rebuke him boldly. Lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the son of your own people. And so one of the ways that we don't love is we take vengeance instead of forgiveness. Okay. But the second way is when we know that they are sinning, we let them go. The context of the use of this verse is that we should rebuke our neighbor frankly and care about the consequence of their actions. Okay. See, the Bible sees sin and its consequences so seriously. In fact, this is how Paul puts it in Galatians. He says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will also reap. And so if you sow to the flesh, you will reap destruction. And if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap life. We should care enough about our neighbors that we care about the consequences of their choices and are willing to rebuke them, to speak frankly of those things, to save them from those consequences, okay? And here's a place that I think is helpful in this because it's uncomfortable territory. Just recognize the primary reason we don't open our mouth, even if we might call it love or even worse, tolerance, the primary reason is self-love, it's uncomfortable to confront somebody. We don't want to ruin the relationship. We're afraid of how they'll treat us or react to us. We don't want to take the time. There's a ton of reasons why we don't deal with other people's sins. Very few of them have to do with our care for other people. Okay? If it's a close friend or if it's a family member and they're ruining their lives with drugs or any other thing, we confront them in it. We have an intervention. Why? Because we care about them. Basically, the Bible says here that should be a standard for all your neighbors. I love G.K. Chesterton's words on this. He says, a lot of our love is love by choice. People we love to love because of some affinity we share, because of something. And he says, but we have to love our neighbor for a much more profound reason, because he is there. He says it's a much greater reason, because he is there. And that's the call of this chapter. Continues on. 
Verse 19, you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Like I said, the holiness is all over the place here. And so now it comes to the unique aspects of what it means to be Jewish. And we saw many of the kosher laws and what they were allowed to eat and not eat and how they dress in these things is specifically to make a distinction between them and other, da- other nations. Not because they're better than other nations, but to keep them distant from other nations. These things are probably in that same category. But the symbolism is one we find all throughout the Levitical laws, which is one of discerning that two things are different and not mashing them together. Okay? recognizing the created boundaries. Boundaries is a huge word in the book of Leviticus. Verse 20, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and is not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meaning, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be given for the sin that he has committed. Now, we don't have to talk time, have time to talk about the differences between slavery here and what we think of when we think of the African slave trade of the 19th century, okay? But I want you to notice here that God recognizes the potential for oppression in slavery. And so, whereas adultery in other places leads to the stoning of both people, never here for the slave woman, right? She's a victim here, a victim of class because she's told what to do by her master. Now, it probably makes you uncomfortable, and frankly, it does me too, that he's not put to death. Instead, there's just basically a fine. And it has to do with this reality of, of slavery, of indentured servitude. There are answers to these things. I promise we'll address them as we get into Deuteronomy, but we don't have time tonight. Verse 23, When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years shall it be forbidden to you. You must not eat it. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. And so he says, first, when you plant a tree, don't eat the fruit for three years. Second, in the fourth year, offer all the fruit to God. Then you can eat it in the fifth year, And then it finishes this by saying, not only because I am the Lord your God, but also for the sake of fruitfulness, okay? Now, here's something you should understand. If you just let a tree bear fruit for three years, it will not be as healthy and fruitful as if you trim it, as if you deal with it uh, like you would a normal tree. And so we read this, and there's one of two options. Either God is literally just setting up a, um, a horticultural act of faith, that goes against the grain of nature. Or more likely, the recognition here is not merely that you wouldn't eat the fruit, but that you would actually clip the buds off before the fruit was born every year, which is actually a known horticultural practice for increasing the fruitfulness of trees. Even if that's the case, the symbolism is what's important. Okay? It changes the way they relate with nature. The tree is effectively allowed just to be a tree and not be just a consumable. And then it has to be filtered through the reality that it belongs first and foremost to God, and then it can be made use of, okay? So there's an intentionality to this, even though it seems foreign to us. Verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it, 
We've already read about that. It continues, you shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Now notice those all fit together. All of them have to do with pagan practices. Okay, and so, so we have um, astrology and fortune telling in there. When it talks about rounding off the hair on your temples or marring the edge of your beard, that has to do with the marks of cultic religious practices. Okay? Even when it mentions tattooing here, it's not talking about tattoos like we have in the modern world, but specifically cuts on your body for the dead. Okay? And so this has to do with necromancy practices and tattoos of, if you will, religious significance. But they have nothing to do with any of these pagan practices. I am the Lord. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land falls into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Now I want you to notice here that it's speaking of two fathers about their daughters, but if you pay attention to the verbiage in chapter 19, it's using a broader family uh, metaphor, and so it also talks about neighbors as brothers. And when it pulls the conclusion that they could become a land full of prostitutes, the idea here is a complete outlying of prostitution. It's not to exist in Israel at all. Okay. Verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, that one's surprising to us as a culture because we're so youth-obsessed. We generally think that it's new ideas that are going to save us, and we don't have what the rest of history has had, which is a classic respect for the elderly. Okay? But here, that was to be part of Israel. They were to, when it says stand up before the gray, it means when an elderly person enters the room, that as an act of respect and honor, you stand up and recognize their presence. Uh, when it says you honor the face of an old man, the idea here is one of respect. Continues on here, verse 33, when a stranger sojourns with you in the land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. How far does neighbor go? Just the guy who lives next to you? No, even the stranger, even the refugee, even the immigrant who settles in the land are to be uh, cared for. He's now talked about three groups that are usually taken advantage of or ignored in societies. Three likely to be abused groups. He's talked about the poor, the disabled, and now he talks about the foreigner. And God calls uh, Israel to care for all of them. Holiness looks like caring for those who, um, who are endangered by society as we know it. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment in measures of length or weight or quantity. In the marketplace in Israel, you would measure out the weight of the shekels or whatever you're using for payment, silver or whatever it is, and then a corresponding weight of the grain they were buying or whatever. But it was very popular in those days and age to have two sets of scales so that you'd get the best of both deals. You'd give up the least amount of grain for the most amount of silver. In other words, holiness means right and proper business practice. God cares about business, okay? We have this tendency to recognize, and I know some of it's just generalization and stereotypical, to recognize uh, that some careers are shady. Like this is how I feel about car rental companies. I know they're taking advantage of me, and I have to feel like I'm on my guard to make sure it doesn't happen. 
If you're a Christian car rental salesman, it should look different. It should look different. We're to be holy as God is holy. And I'll remind you that Peter takes this phrase, be holy as I am holy, and applies it to us. James, as I mentioned, takes this chapter and exposits it extensively in his book. Okay? Not all of these things have direct correlation to our life. Some of you may have shown up wearing two different types of clothing tonight. Okay? But these things are significant in value for helping us to understand who God is and what he cares about. Verse 35, uh, we did verse 36, you shall have just balances and just weights, a just ephaf, that's a measurement, a just hin, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them, I am the Lord. I just want to finish this chapter recognizing, recognizing that this is all rooted in the character of God. They are to be like God. And for Israel as a nation, some of that is symbolic, like the clothing, like these things. A lot of it, though, is clearly ethical. Okay? When we live a holy life, we display who God is. Okay? We reflect who God is. When the Bible says we were created in the image of God, one of the things that that's pointing to is that our lives should reflect who God is. This chapter is a great resource for understanding what that looks like. And I want to once again uh, express how much it should broaden your boundaries. Holiness is not merely that you don't go to these types of bars or especially hang out with those types of people. Right? It has to do with what you do about the realities of poverty how you treat the disabled and the immigrant. It has to do with what happens in your business practices. It has to do with all of these areas. It's a broad category. Now it's striking, isn't it, that we have chapter 18 that makes us so uncomfortable, followed by chapter 19, valleys and peaks. That's what I was saying earlier. Okay. Every once in a while, people will accuse us of cherry-picking the Old Testament and deciding what we have to keep and what we get to walk away from. And so they'll take, like that commandment for homosexuality, and put it up against eating lobster and go, come on, you're just being so subjective. It's worth pointing out that unless you're thorough, everyone trying to use the Old Testament has to make choices. Has to, right? If, if they say that we're cherry-picking and then they say, hey, love your neighbor, right? If they make social justice a huge issue and sexual morality a small issue, they're doing the same thing. But there is a way to rightly and appropriately work through these things, okay? The church does it extensively in the New Testament, starts to filter and sift these things, explain the ones that Jesus has so totally fulfilled that have no moral value, that aren't directly related to the character of God, and then call us to the self-same moral high calling as Christians. Okay? And so it's an oversimplification to say that we as Christians are just picking and choosing. No, we're thoughtfully and theologically interpreting the text and recognizing what it points to. Okay? Very quickly, I'd like to just go through chapter 20, and I'll tell you why. Chapter 20 is a final concluding chapter on everything we've learned. It basically says, now, what do you do when these things happen? It has to do with punishment. And what we're going to see is that not all punishment is equal. And so there is capital punishment in Israel, and then there is, uh, is lesser things. Okay? And it wants to divide those categories. One of the reasons why I said that we don't cherry pick in Leviticus is because of these distinctions. 
that some things in the book of Leviticus have the death penalty and some just make you unclean till evening. Shouldn't that matter in how we read it? Shouldn't that matter in its significance? Of course. So let's read chapter 20. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel or are the strangers who sojourn in Israel who give any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Okay, and so if you offer your children as sacrifices, it prescribes the death penalty. Now, side note, the death penalty is another thing we don't have time to talk about, but let me just give you a couple of notes. One, Israel is a nation and a unique one, a theocratic nation, one where the tabernacle exists and where God is speaking through prophets. It's unique from a modern democracy. And so you can't just cut and paste this and say this is how we should do our laws. Two, there are good cases to be made in both directions that Christians should be for the death penalty or hesitant about it based on what Jesus says and what Paul says in the New Testament. For me, it's hard to get around Romans 13 that says the government does not bear the sword in vain. Okay? That one of the purposes government has is to deal with consequence as a representative of God. Now, it does it recognize that governments can go sideways on that? Have you read Revelation? Of course it does. Okay? But on the other hand, what do we see in John chapter 8 when Jesus is presented with a woman caught in adultery and they remind him that this chapter says she's to be stoned? He's, after he says, he who among you is you know, free of sin, let him cast the first stone, and they all leave, he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Okay? But either way, either way, the recognition needs to be kept in mind that we're talking about a particular nation that has a particularly unique law, one written by God to represent God in a unique way. Verse three, I myself will set my face against the man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Okay, God takes the death of children personally. Jesus, side note, did too. He said, if anyone stumbles a little child, it would be better for him for him to tie a millstone, a very large rock around his neck and throw himself into the sea. You know, most scholars are pretty convinced that he's talking about pedophilia. Did you know that? He cares about the abuse of children, and he speaks strongly about those things. He cares about those things because he's God. Verse 4, And if the people of the land do all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I'll set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among the people, him and all who follow him, whoring after Molech. And so there's also a concern of allowing injustice to happen, a sin of omission, you will. So maybe you're not the one killing the child, but you're looking the other way. You know that this is going on right next. We are called as Christians to get involved, okay? Verse 6, if a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. And so it mentions two more here, these pagan practices of fortune tellers and necromancers and these types of things, as well as how we treat parents. And you need to know that curses his mother or father is not fulfilled verbally. This word doesn't just mean you said something bad about your parents, okay? It's an incredibly strong term, okay? But it clearly takes the respect that is owed parents 
very significantly. Remember that it's one of the Ten Commandments, okay? And so it recognizes this, and it calls for the death penalty. Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he's uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall be surely put to death. Their blood is upon them. And so it takes this same sexual code that we've read and starts to apply these things. There are, side note, only 18 things in all of the Old Testament law that call for the death penalty, which uh, is a lot less than the UK. I, that's, that's all I know. The UK has a higher one because I was reading a, a, a British commentator. And so comparatively, the list of things that get the severest form of punishment is less than many modern societies today. Second, one of the things we learn from the punishments here is God cares a lot more about how you treat people than how, you, how it goes economically. And that's unique in the ancient world. If you read the Babylonian law, it is economic crimes like theft that bear the biggest penalty. Sexual crimes, crimes against children and oppressing your slaves and these types of things, not as big of a punishment, not as big of a deal. But the Bible balances things differently. Um, the last thing I want to point out to you is although this gives the death penalty, we do have solid reasons to believe that it wasn't always handed out, okay? That this is the only crimes that could receive the death penalty, but it's not that everyone required the death penalty, although some of them clearly do, okay? And so we have cases later on where Israel doesn't carry out this as an act of mercy. That's, I think, important to keep in mind, too. Um, verse 14 if a man takes a woman and her mother also, it's a depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. Most likely, that's not a different penalty. That's what happens after they're stoned to death. Much like we see in the story of Achan and his family, okay, where they're stoned and then burned alive. Uh, sorry, burned dead, not burned alive. Uh, verse 15, if a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. Now, there's, there's an injustice in that, right? Even we as moderns recognize that an animal can't give consent, and so that makes this, at the very least, inappropriate. Why is the animal killed? Most commentators believe it's because you'd have this constant reminder, okay? I don't think that's necessarily a good reason, but I do think it's understandable, because we have to remember that any time these are carried out, these are not reprehensible, you know, ingrates on the borders of society. These are brothers and sisters and neighbors, Okay, none of this stuff is lighthearted. Verse 16, if a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it's a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered the sister's nakedness, and it shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made, uh, made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people. Okay? So notice here we've moved in punishment from capital punishment, you shall put them to death, to they shall be cut off from their people, which once again is a broad category. 
Verse 20, if a man lies with his uncle's wife, he's uncovered his uncle's nakedness, they shall bear the sin, they shall die childless. Okay, so this is, this is incestual, but not in the intermediate family, not in the internal family like it was. There's more distance here. There's still consequence, and this one is meted out by God. He says that they're not going to have any children. Okay. Verse 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it's an impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and rules and do them that, they land, that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. And so he finishes just by saying there's two paths here, obedience and blessing and disobedience and curse. Okay, that's part of the covenant that God makes with Israel. It'll get more extensive as we go along. Verse 25, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything which uh, the ground crawls, which I've set apart for you to hold unclean. You'll be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And so this section begins where it ends, with be holy as I am holy. Okay. Now, we'll get to verse 27 in just a second, but I want to start concluding now, and I just want to recognize, if this chapter says anything, it says that sin is serious and should be taken seriously. And I find oftentimes that the things that we find uncomfortable about the Old Testament have to do with the fact that we just don't think these things are a big deal. And it may, once again, make you uncomfortable to read these things and how serious these crimes are, but we also have a tendency to underplay the consequence of unchecked sin and what it does in people's lives. Okay? And then I will add one last thing to you, that this law, remember, is a metric of what God has done to save us in Jesus Christ. Remember that Jesus himself took upon himself a death penalty in our place. And so not only is God serious in sin in litigating it and providing laws and consequences, he's also serious in doing something about it, bearing the punishment fully. When it says here, once again, I am the Lord your God, you have to hear it through that lens. Not as some sort of arbitrary, OCD, crazy authoritarian God, but a loving, personal God who created us for life, to flourish, and so sets those boundaries, and when we couldn't measure up to that, took the penalty that we deserve on his own shoulders to give life. And then the last one it mentions here has to do with those um, pagan practices again. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, and their blood shall be upon them. I do not know why that one comes after the paragraph before and not before. Part of me wishes we didn't have to finish here tonight, but we are definitely out of time. Um, so let me just springboard over the whole thing again and, and just hit the highlights. All of this stuff goes through the filter of the sacrificial system we've already seen. It is because of what God has provided in the tabernacle that these things matter, and it is through the tabernacle that the consequences of these things are forgiven and dealt with in the Day of Atonement. Um, God cares... Uh, cares about many issues and they stem primarily from his character and from the inherent dignity of other human beings because God created them as well. Okay. But ultimately, 
We aspire to this. We live in light of this. We conform our lives to this because we have this relationship with God. Be holy because I am holy. Coincides with I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay? And so it's not be holy and I'll make you my people. It's you are my people, so be holy. And I think that's important as well. Let's pray. God, some of these things require days and months. Some of them are so incredible and beautiful, like chapter 19 and chapter 16, the Day of Atonement and the chapter of loving your neighbor as yourself, that we should camp there, that we should dwell there. Other places like valleys are harder for us to understand, distant from our own culture, Um, and yet if we could just spend more time with them, if we could think through them, if we could filter them through who God is as creator and savior, uh, then we could also make sense of those things. But what we've done tonight, Lord, is just take an aerial view to get a broad understanding of who you are and who you call us to be. I pray, Lord, wherever we're at tonight, that you would challenge us on the foundations of our own ethics that are often arbitrary, that are limited, that have nothing to do with human flourishing and just have to do with human autonomy uh, and self-actualization and don't truly think about others as being byproducts of the divine that reflect your image and so should be handled with care and soberness. I pray that you'd help us all to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.